Welcome back to our med search podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be going over the musculoskeletal system. Um, we'll be going over assessment of the musculoskeletal system as well as a few of the main disease processes included within um, this complex organ system. So we know all of our functions of the musculoskeletal system. First, starting off with the different parts, we have our bones, our joints, muscles, tendons, ligaments, also bursae of the body, with the main functions being to aid and support and protection, and then also to foster movement in all extremities. That's going to be our main functions of our musculoskeletal system. I am going to ask you to please go back and review A&P of the musculoskeletal system. Um, It's all information that you received in A&P, so it all should just be review. But a lot of the words can be complex, so it would behoove you to make sure that you do go back and review to make sure that you do have a good understanding of all the different parts and how they kind of go along together. We're not going to spend really any time on the A&P because that's information that you should know already. Um, But just kind of jumping into some gerontologic considerations for the musculoskeletal system. You know, working um, in acute care on med surge, we deal a lot with our older population. And even if they come in for different disorders, say CHF or diabetes or hypertension, they still also have other comorbidities. And one of the main ones we see a lot of times is disorders of the musculoskeletal system, whether it be arthritis or osteoporosis or just having weakness and multiple falls as they're getting older. Um, Women, you see that a lot as we get osteoporosis, we start to get that hump back or we actually start to get shorter as we get older. All of these come into effect because of our age. Um, And if we don't take preventive measures now when we're young, eating well, Um, Having a diet high in calcium, phosphorus, getting enough vitamin D from sunlight or drinking enough milk to get vitamin D, um, the milk that has the vitamin D added into it. Exercising like we should regularly, keeping our bones strong, it will catch up to us as we get older. And that's where a lot of those gerontologic considerations do come into effect. Um, You need to know all of your osis words. Kyphosis which is the forward curvature of the thoracic spine, that mid-back, kind of like the humpback. Um, The lordosis, that's when you have that curvature inward of your lower back, your lumbar spine. Um, The curvature a lot of women get when they're pregnant and they're trying to support their growing stomach. And then also scoliosis, that sideways curve of your back. All of those are terms that you do need to be um, aware of. We know that women, when we go through menopause, this causes a lot of change with our bone, um, with the main reason why we no longer have as much estrogen being produced by our body. Also getting older, possibly decreased activity, and this is going to lead to osteoporosis. Our bones are going to start to become kind of brittle and porous. That can lead to fractures. I've actually seen a lady walking, and she stepped wrong and broke her hip. She did not even fall. Um, She just stepped a wrong way, broke her hip, and had to get a hip replacement the next day. Um, That's how bad it can get with some women. If um, diet, like I said, diet's not right, exercise is not right, you're not taking care of yourself. Um, But as women, we do tend to lose more bone mass than men. So on a natural scale, just with age, women, we usually have more bone problems. But 
um, when you think about like with med use, that's where men's numbers tend to go up more. Men usually have more problems that are due to use of different medicines. Um, one particular being corticosteroids. You know, if you're on corticosteroids for long-term use, but you might increase risk for bone loss also. And those fractures are common as we get older, the increase in activity, diminished neuron stimulation, and also nutritional deficiencies. Older adults may suffer from chronic musculoskeletal disorders that limit mobility and interfere with their ability to perform self-care. And this may lead older adults to depend on others for completion of ADLs. Um, they may grieve their loss of independence and sometimes this can even end up having for families to have to put older adults in different alternative living situations, such as skilled nursing homes. If it does get to the point where family cannot care for them, or if they don't have family to care for them. So these major life changes can be significant to our older adult population. So getting into assessment of a musculoskeletal system, health history, what is going to be specific about health history for musculoskeletal? Usually when someone has any type of musculoskeletal disorder, one of the main things that they are going to complain about is going to be pain. So always make sure that you figure out or get a good pain assessment. We want to know the character, the severity, the location, the duration, when did it start, what happened beforehand, did something cause it or aggravate it, what are precipitating factors, relieving factors, the progression of it, or was it acute, is it chronic, um, are there remissions and exacerbations, location, quality of the pain, is it stabbing, is it cramping, is it dull, all of these things are going to be important. So make sure that you get a thorough pain assessment. Make sure you do this first thing before you give them any pain medicine because you don't want to give them pain medicine. And now they're telling you the assessment based off how they're feeling after they've been medicated. Do it when it is fresh, when they first come in and are in the most pain because that's when you're going to get the best information. In addition to pain being one of the main um, common signs and symptoms, you're also going to have tenderness or also altered sensations. So this kind of gets more into like the focus physical assessment. Um, you always want to get pulses. Neurovascular is going to be very important. Um, now I'm not saying to check all 12 pulses that we have for peripheral pulses for everyone bilaterally. But usually when you are on the floor, you're at least going to get radial and you're going to get pedal. So that kind of gives you the most distal points to make sure that there is blood flowing all the way to your fingers and all the way to your toes. We want to get those. If you feel any discrepancies, always grab a Doppler. If you're not feeling pulses at all, grab another nurse so that way they can check. Um, if the Doppler's not coming up with anything, make sure you call the doctor. Um, also want to check skin. Is it warm? Is it cold? Any breaks in the skin? Breaks in the bones? We're looking for edema. Um, looking just for any discrepancies within limbs, like is one limb shorter than the other? Um, especially when someone's standing up, that's how you can tell if they have scoliosis. One 
shoulder might be taller than the other, one hip might be taller than the other. You want to look for symmetry within the musculoskeletal system. Limbs are the same size, back is straight. All that's going to be important to look at. We want to assess movement. We want to do this through active and passive range of motion. So have the person lifting up their arms, lifting up their legs, twisting their neck, all of these on their own, and then with you doing it also. That's going to be the passive range of motion to make sure that they do have full range of motion. Or if they don't, document in which specific extremities that they have that limited range of motion. Um, you see a lot of disabled people or people who are bed bound might get contractures over time. Um, if they are not utilizing their muscles, and when you have contractures, this is when your muscles atrophy and basically that kind of become like rock. In whatever position that your extremity kind of is in when that muscle atrophies, that's just how it stays forever. There's no way to come out of a contracture. That's where you might see a lot of people who are bed bound with their arm kind of like um, pressed up against their chest. Um, and their hand kind of squeezed together, that's their mu muscle that has atrophied that way. That's a contracture. And there's, like I said, there's no way to fix that. At that point, you just kind of have to keep the bony parts just kind of off of themselves. Um, we use this sometimes with washcloths, with pillows, things like that. So that way their skin won't start breaking down where they do have those pressure points. Also, testing muscle strength is going to be important. Um, this is, again, with all extremities, because sometimes you might have discrepancies in one or all of them, especially if they have a fracture somewhere. Obviously, they won't have much muscle strength in that one limb. So testing it in all muscle strengths, testing gait, seeing how well that they walk, looking at their posture, um, different background information, seeing their occupation. A lot of times this can tell you a lot of information about someone's musculoskeletal system. Someone who works as an accountant is not going to be as active as someone who's a construction worker. Someone who works in construction, a lot more at risk for musculoskeletal um, injury. So asking about occupation is going to be important. Exercise patterns, alcohol consumption, tobacco use. Um, also that dietary intake. Asking about comorbid or chronic conditions is also going to be important. And then also family problems. Sometimes um, arthritis can run in families. Let's see. Also with inspection, just look for um, bone growth. They might just look like tumors kind of sticking out of the skin. You might see it more with older adults, especially on the places of their joints. Or you might see that um, the places of their joints look inflamed or they might kind of look out of place. This is something that's going to be important for our older adult population. So different diagnostic testing that is important when do, dealing with the musculoskeletal system. One of the main ones you'll see, x-rays. That's going to be very, very big, especially when you have fractures, breaks, things of that nature. X-rays are always going to be go-to before CTs and MRIs. One, because you don't need contrast. Two, because it's quicker and you can even do x-rays at bedside. So a lot of times, even if CTs or MRIs are needed, because x-rays are so much more accessible, they will still go ahead and get an x-ray first, just so that way they can have some type of visualization. Um, but just remember that x-rays are more so for visualizing bone. Um, CTs, MRIs, that's more so for visualizing tissue. 
So also that's another reason. Much of the um dealing more with bones, you have to take that into consideration. X-rays, bones, other ones, tissues. Um, arthrography. This is still a series of x-rays, but it goes into a little bit more depth. This is when they want to get better view of the joint. Um, so they inject a radio um, plaque contrast into the joint cavity to visualize it. But it's still using a series of x-ray pictures to kind of visualize that joint and looking at that, um, at that die and seeing what it's doing. You can get bone scans have joint function tests, um, and then still with that, um, blood tests are gonna be important. CBCs, always gonna be one number one, especially because our blood cells are made within the bone. So CBC is still gonna be important for that reason. Also calcium, vitamin D, phosphorus, like our electrolytes, our vitamins, those will also be tested a lot also. And Make sure you do your information on the DEXA scan, D-E-X-A, DEXA scan. That's another one that is used with, with bones. Arthrocentesis, this is when we get a joint aspiration and then they do test on that. Sometimes they might test for infection and things of that nature. And also for bone metabolism, we'll want to look at thyroid studies. We'll look at calcitonin, PTH, and again, vitamin D levels. So now getting into a few of our different disease processes for our musculoskeletal. First, just in general, low back pain. Um, for some reason, this is something that we see, especially chronic conditions across all types of people especially in our older generation, is low back pain, chronic back pain, not just acute, but chronic back pain. It can be caused from different occupations, especially people that deal with occupations where there's a lot more movement, a lot more lifting, um, people that have bad body mechanics, people who are obese, um, people who travel a lot for work. All of these can be taken into consideration of causes for low back pain. Certain medications such as corticosteroids, if your bones are breaking down over time because of those steroids, it can actually put more pressure on your lower back. Um, so it's kind of like with gravity especially when you have obese people, all that weight is coming down on your lower back and your lower back and legs are supporting all of your weight. That's why you see more chronic pain in the back and the legs and hips for people who are obese. Um, so there are a lot of different reasons why someone can have low back pain. And that's one of the first things that you want to find out within your assessment is why that they are having this back pain. So asking a lot of questions is going to be important. Inspection, making sure that their back is in alignment is going to be important. Um, range of motion, seeing if they can twist side to side, up and down, bend forward, looking at range of motion, looking at strength is going to be important. Asking if the pain radiates anywhere, because that might tell you that it actually might be a problem within their vertebrae and they might have like a slip disc or something going on with the nerves if the pain is radiating down to their fingers. So all that's going to be important and they'll probably also get x-rays and ct scans to see if there is anything actually going on with the spine um, if it's not then they may try just some non-pharmacologic measures losing weight eating more healthy 
diet high in calcium and vitamin D, maybe along with some NSAIDs or Tylenol. If it's going to be long-term use, make sure that they are educated on important things of Tylenol, educated on important things of NSAIDs that we already know about for nursing management. We won't go into that. Um, but if those over-the-counters are not effective, that's when you can get more so into your heavier medications. The doctor might prescribe Toradol, uh, might prescribe Tramadol. They'll kind of try those before they get into the heavy narcotics. Now, if those are not important, that's when we can get into the hydrocodones, the oxycodones, and things of that nature. They might try and give them like a lidocaine patch, like a transdermal type patch to see if that will help with their back pain. Um, they may try physical therapy, sometimes with PT working with people and on um, positioning and things of that nature and good body mechanics that can help with pain. So it really just depends on the person and how they react to different types of therapy. But remember that you always want to start from least invasive therapy to most invasive. So you're not just going to go from not giving someone anything to giving them Dilaudid. You're going to start out, like I said, with the over-the-counters and work your way up. Start out with PT. Um, start out with just lifestyle changes first and see if that is able to help reverse the pain and wherever it's coming from. Different types of disorders that come with our upper extremities. These can include bursitis or tendinitis, which are basically inflammatory conditions. Usually they occur within the shoulders, sometimes within the wrist or even the fingers. Um, also carpal tunnel, this is a big one that you see. That's basically when someone has neuropathy within their wrists. You see it a lot with people that work um, computer jobs and their hands are in the same position on the keyboard all day. They tend to get carpal tunnel. Uh, conservative treatments are always started out with these first, just like with back pain, starting out with heat or ice, Tylenol, NSAIDs, and then move up to more invasive um, treatments if that's not effective. For carpal tunnel, there is a neurovascular release type surgery that they can do, and um, they do this if conservative measures are unsuccessful for carpal tunnel. It is an outpatient procedure. The person is put in, into a splint um, at the end of the procedure. Some people try and get both wrists done at the same time. Doctors always try and stay away from that. So that way they do not lose, you know, like control of both wrists at the same time. So if someone does have carpal tunnel in both, they do try and schedule them at different times. Um, so that way kind of still having some functionality is there while they are going through recovery. You want to focus on pain control. Um, aside from our ABCs, we want to focus on pain control and then getting back our range of motion as um, prescribed and working with physical therapy. A lot of people, when they go through bone trauma, joint trauma, they want to just keep that joint fixated. Um, and you can't do that over time. As it is healing, you do need to start moving it more. Otherwise, it can get contractured. And as we talked about before, there's no way of getting rid of contractions. So moving as much as you can, as much as will be permitted. Now, sometimes you will have to have it in the splint and you can't move it. But once you're able to, we got to get moving. Let's see, different signs and symptoms when working with disorders of the upper extremity, specifically carpal tunnel. The patient may experience pain. They may experience numbness, paresthesia, which is like the tingly feeling in your fingers. Um, also possibly weakness. 
It's usually found most within the thumb, index, and middle fingers. Um, the person may also have night pain as well as waking up with fist clenching throughout the night. And some common foot problems that we see. First one is callus. A callus is a thickened area of the skin that has been exposed to persistent pressure or friction. So it's like um, when you get that white area on your foot, that's really hard to get rid of. Um, it won't go away with lotion. That's usually a callus. Um, a corn is a hyperkeratosis, an overgrowth of a horny layer of your epidermis. And it's usually on one of your smaller toes that you find corns. With these, um, it usually is caused by ill-fitting shoes or it can also be caused by arthritis. And But these, they do have to be kind of sawed down. It's a little bit harder to get rid of corns as compared to calluses. Um, with hammer toe, this is actually a deformity of the bone. And this is when your toes start to flex, start to flexion like in a certain way. Plantar fasciitis, this is inflammation of the foot supporting fascia. And with this, you get a lot of pain within your heels and the back of your ankles, more so in the morning. But then as you start to walk around within the first 20, 30 minutes and start to kind of stretch out those joints, it does start to go away with time. With all of these, just like our upper extremities, um, if it does cause pain like plantar fasciitis, you want to start off with more conservative measures. Um, if someone is needing pain medicine, we're going to start off with OTCs first. But for the most part, stretching um, is going to be the best thing. Also losing weight because if you are obese, you're just putting extra weight on those joints, which can cause more pain. So losing weight, stretching, also orthotic devices helps that help support your, um, your heels and your ankles can help or also steroid injections. Big thing with steroid injections, these do not last forever. Um, so people kind of get these injections within their back or within their joints to help with chronic pain. And they think it's kind of a one size fits all, but it really just relieves that inflammation for a period of time. Some people more longer than others. Some people get three weeks. Some people get six months. Some people get two years. I've seen people get through only three days of getting some relief from their pain. So everyone is different. So the steroid injections, unfortunately, don't work for everyone. And then looking at the callus, looking at the um, at the corn, manually getting rid of these, going to a podiatrist is going to be preferred treatment. They can help saw those off and scale that skin down. Hammer toe, um, if it gets bad enough, that's also surgical treatment. Um, surgery, getting rid of hammer toe, safety is going to be big. Because someone waking up, they're going to have a boot on their foot. You don't want them to fall in addition to having that anesthesia. So ABCs, pain control, safety. Those are going to be the main ones that we're going to be looking at. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of degenerative joint disease, osteoarthritis. This is a non-inflammatory disorder also called degenerative joint disease. You will still see that in some people's charts. So it can be either OA or DJD. It can be primary, which is idiopathic, meaning that you really don't know 
what the cause of it is, or it can be secondary, meaning that there is a cause. You see that too with hypertension, where they call it primary or secondary, with primary being idiopathic. Idiopathic just means that there's really no reason why it happened. It just happened. But OA usually does start within the third decade of life and peaks within the fifth in your 50s or 60s. Um, so for women, you see it more when we start going through menopause. For women, we are more at risk. Women being of Hispanic and African-American origin are more affected. Within OA, what basically happens is the cartilage between our joints kind of starts to disintegrate. So we lose a lot of that lubrication that protects our joints. And this causes to our joints kind of rubbing together. You may hear some crepitus and it leads to a lot of pain. Um, and even the formation of bone spurts that can protrude outside of the joint space because that space is narrow. So we have decreased joint movement, potential for more damage, and chronic pain that comes with that. Other risk factors besides age, being female and being obese, people with certain occupations, so occupations that do require more labor, people who engage in more sports activities, history of previous illness or previous injuries, genetic predispositions, and also certain diseases can put you at more risk for joint destruction. The main clinical manifestations, we have pain, stiffness, also functional impairment your movement is going to be more limited if you have OA. It is going to be aggravated with movement and exercise, and it is going to be relieved with rest. In the morning, you the person may be stiff, so stretching out may help them getting up first thing in the morning. And the joint that is affected may be enlarged. X-rays will be gotten. Whenever we are looking for diagnostics and that will show an increased joint or narrow joint space, I'm sorry. And the goal of management is going to be to decrease pain and stiffness and improve joint mobility. The doctor is going to want the person put on an exercise plan, especially aerobic exercises. Um, if they are obese, weight loss. And then also physical therapy. Insoles within their shoes may help if they're always with, on their lower limbs. Um, knee braces, things of that nature can help. And then pharmacologic management. Um, just like before, we're going to start off more conservative. They're going to get the NSAIDs or the COX-2 enzyme blockers first. Um, and if that's not effective, that's when you can move up to the more major medicines. Your tramadol, your opioids, if those do not work for you. Topical analgesics may be used for those joints. You can put those right over those joints. A lot of times it can help provide some numbness. Or if it gets to the point where the joint is basically beyond repair and severe, the doctor may even opt for an arthroplasty. Um, with an arthroplasty, I know for me, I've seen these most with hips, knees, and shoulders. I think your book says the most ones that you see are fingers, hips. In these, I honestly have never seen a finger joint replacement before. Um, the ones I've seen most are knees, hips, and shoulders. And these are done like when there's so much damage done to the joint, there's no coming back from it. And the pain is just the point where that person has no quality of life. 
Um, it could be due to trauma. Um, but that joint just isn't is not going to be able to be repaired or let that person live with just pain medicine. So they do have to go in and put in metal parts in its place to fix that joint. With totals, uh, with total joints, biggest thing coming out of it is going to be movement, pain control, respiratory, DVT prevention. I know when I was at Cobb, we did trial a program, but we did send knees home same day, and it did not last very long. People do need to be kept for at least a day after surgery, so that way you can also get them up and make sure that they are ambulating. Um, but they will need PT. Even if they get PT in the hospital, they will still be in PT probably for months following their surgery because with these joints, you have to make sure that you are continuously upping the angle that you're able to move the joint at a slow motion and this needs to be monitored by a, um, by a professional because you don't want to move it too much and pop it out of place and you don't want to move it too little and now you have a contracture and have limited movement of your new joint so you will be in therapy for a long time pain control is going to be big since they basically have to break your old joint out of place and, or break the bone take it out of place and put a new artificial one in there. So it is an extensive surgery. Pain control is going to be big. DVT prevention, because sometimes you can't move around as much as you could before, especially that limb. It may be limited for a while, so that person will be at increased risk for blood clots. Um, so they will be on prevention prophylactically, VTE, as we call it in the hospitals. Um, inpatient, they usually will be put on heparin or Lovenox, which they will may also go home with for a period of time, too, until they are up moving around some. Um, and even at that point, the doctor may have them take like an aspirin daily to help with DVT prevention and make sure that they are still ambulating. Um, if they're not able to move their knee fully yet or their hip fully or their shoulder fully, still have them move those digits, move their fingers, wiggle their toes. This even helps with circulation. Um, in the hospitals, make sure they have on the SCDs. This helps with circulation. We want to make sure we bring out all the measures to help with DVT prevention. Even drinking more water. The more volume you have, less problem with the clock you would have. Um, preventing infection. Whenever you do have a new joint replacement, that first dressing, you will not be taking off yourself. The surgeon always takes that off, but you still need to assess it. So even though you cannot see under the dressing, you still need to assess the, uh, the skin around the dressing. What does it look like? Um, is it normal for their ethnicity? Is it red? Is it inflamed? Is the knee popping out? Like, is there drainage? Does it smell? Look for all those signs that you would think you would have with infection. Um, and then even after that first dressing is changed, make sure you are following orders after that. If it does need to be changed every day or every other day, Sometimes the doctors may just put on staples with some steri strips over it, and there's no need to change the dressing. Um, it really just depends on the surgeon and their preference. But if there are dressing orders, make sure that you do follow those and do detailed assessments on a regular basis. Teach your patients on what to look for when it comes to infection. Um, also managing vital signs because we know with infection, temperature is going to be elevated, pulse will be elevated, blood pressure may be elevated. Um, all those are going to be important signs. That's actually what we look for when we are looking for septicemia in the hospitals. Whenever we do a SERS, 
questionnaire. We're looking at vital signs. We're not actually looking at inflammation. So you also want to look at vital signs. Daily white blood cell count. What does white blood cell count look like? If it starts going up, even little by little, if that chart is starting to go up in numbers, that is going to cause cause for concern for white blood cell count. So let's see. Went through DVTs, went through infection, went through exercise. Another important thing to remember, this is specific for hips, hip replacement. Their hip, the hip has to stay abducted. Now, you know our different words that we use for postures. Adduction, ADD, that's the legs being brought together. Abduction, ABD, legs far further apart. When the person is in bed, we either put pillows or we put a triangular wedge in between their legs. And we do this because if the legs become adducted and too close together, this can actually pop out a new hip. And if that happens, that person will be going back to the OR. And I can guarantee you, whosoever shift that happens on, that doctor is going to be very upset with that nurse. Because you basically have to do the whole procedure over again. So make sure you keep hips or your, the legs spread apart, even when you are rolling them just for regular care. You need to have a pillow in between their legs. Um, same thing for when they're sitting on toilets. You do not want to have them sitting on a low toilet. If they are sitting down too low, also puts them at risk for that hip popping out. So if you see that that toilet seat is low, just get a commode and place that commode over the toilet. That way you have a higher toilet seat. For hips, that is one of the biggest causes for concern is it coming out of place. Also fall prevention. That bed alarm is going to need to be on, especially until they are completely off anesthesia or if they are on a PCA pump until they're off that PCA pump because you don't want them on those narcotics that often and on anesthesia. Now they think they can get up, they can't, and they fall out of bed. And again, something's popped out of place. This could be their knee, hip, or shoulder, either one. You want to make sure you prevent falls as much as possible. Um, but they will be ambulating within a day. That's for knees and hips. For shoulders, they can ambulate whenever they're awake. Um, but for knees and hips, a lot of people think that they're going to be in bed for some time. That is not the case. A lot of times they even get them out of bed the same day. Um, because early ambulation, again, help prevent DVTs and help getting them up in their recovery. Um, helps them to recover a lot sooner. Before someone does go home from the acute care setting, they do need to be set up with whatever type of outpatient um, resources they will be needing. Some people just need outpatient therapy where their spouse or someone can take them to PT on a regular basis. Some people may need home health care where someone actually comes into their home to see them. But either way, um, as a nurse, we don't actually set that up, but we do need to get a hold of whether it's social worker or care coordination, whoever takes care of it in your place of employment to set up those resources for when they do get home. So that way they will get the proper therapy that they need. And I believe osteoporosis is our last disorder that we're going to talk about for this podcast. Yeah, osteoporosis um, occurs mostly in women after menopause. But a lot of times you will see it in men, especially men who are taking um, medicines that can break down your bones. 
And what it is, is basically when, I'm trying to say, it's like reduced, like your bone mass is reduced and it causes like porous holes in your bones. Um, and basically it breaks your bones down, puts you at increased risk for fractures with osteoporosis. Um, again, it can be idiopathic or it can be secondary, meaning that you do know the cause of it. This one, it is um, diagnosed through the DEXA scan. And with osteoporosis, the biggest thing is going to be prevention, um, making sure that you are promoting diets high in calcium, diets high in vitamin D, aerobic exercises on a regular basis, um, things like that for people. Um, for people that are taking corticosteroids, making sure that they are getting their bone studies regularly. So that way, if there is bone breakdown, they can catch it early before a fracture does happen. Um, different lab studies that we will get for people suspected of having osteoporosis are going to be serum calcium, phosphate, phosphatates, um, urine, calcium also, besides blood calcium. We're going to get H&H, &H, also erythrocyte sedimentation rates, and we're going to do some x-ray studies. For treatment for these people that are diagnosed with osteoporosis, we are going to give them supplements. Calcium, vitamin D. They're going to take that throughout their whole life now. Um, with these, you do need to take them with food. We're also going to promote a, a diet that is rich within these, um, within these vitamins. Drinking plenty of milk. If you can, if they're not lactose intolerant, cheeses, other dairy, broccoli, salmon, um, orange juice. All this contains calcium and vitamin D. Make sure you do know our normals that we need to be eating a vitamin D and calcium a day. Well, if we are taking in vitamin D, also say drinking vitamin D since it comes in milk and water. Um, but how much we need to be ingesting every day or how much sunlight? Like, are we sitting out in the sun for 10 minutes or are we sitting out in the sun for two hours a day? Like, what is normal for an adult? need to make sure that they're taking in enough vitamin D for the day. How much is enough orange juice for an adult to take in for calcium um, for orange juice in the day? All this is going to be important so that way you can provide that education to someone else. If someone is smoking, we need to advise them to quit. Not just slow down, but they need to quit. And if someone does have a fracture, how we can manage that? Safety to prevent falls in the home is going to be big, big, big for our older adult population. Adequate lighting, getting rid of rugs and any cords, um, following up with regular glasses exams, no tables just sitting out anywhere if you can kind of push the furniture back, things of that nature. If they do have a lot of stairs in their home, maybe moving their bedroom down to the first level, they don't have to go upstairs as much, anything to help them be safe in home. So that's going to include, conclude this podcast for today. So I will see you guys in class on Wednesday. And let's be prepared to talk about this some more and do some activities.